This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanik. Welcome back. There are some interesting patterns in the Book of Mormon. The foundational book of the LDS Church, the Restored Church, as President Nelson prefers us to call it, or the Church of Jesus Christ, that's acceptable too. I think that was a good move, by the way, to de-emphasize the word Mormon. It frees us to think beyond our traditional understanding of Mormonism and what it means to be a Mormon. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a constructive thing. So I applaud that effort because there's nothing worse than getting locked into an identity or a way of doing things or a, or a policy or procedure or a culture and getting away from terms like Mormonism or the Mormon church or being a Mormon frees us to reexamine things anew. Of course, some people don't like this. And the only reason I mention any of this is because it ties into some of these patterns that I see in our foundational book, the Book of Mormon, which is where the word Mormon and Mormonism comes from, though we don't worship Mormon. So I think President Nelson is spot on when he says, let's get away from, from calling ourselves Mormons. Let's get away from calling the church the Mormon church. Let's call it, let's call it what it is, what God tells us it is. That's a good pattern for our lives. Let's call ourselves what God says we are. Fundamentally, let's seek God's understanding of what we are, God's understanding of what life is all about. Those are, those are all good things. And this is a pattern that you see in the Book of Mormon, actually. A pattern that's frequently talked about regarding the Book of Mormon is this, the, the pride cycle pattern. You know, people are very humble. They turn to God. They pray. God blesses them. And then people start to think these blessings that they receive from God are deserved, that they've earned it by their own efforts, their own intelligence, their own strength. Then they become prideful. They march around like they're, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread. And as we know, pride cometh before the fall. And the fall comes in this pride cycle. And then there we are back at the start. That's the, that's the pattern that we typically talk about in reference to the Book of Mormon. I want to talk about a different pattern, one that's more analogous to the recent policy change by President Nelson to, to move away from calling the church the Mormon church and calling ourselves Mormons. And it's this pattern that you see over and over in the Book of Mormon of people leaving an established way of doing things, an established identity even, and looking at life anew and doing things differently, presumably better, doing things in a way that conforms more closely with what is true, because that's really what we're interested in. We're interested in, in the truth, what is. We're interested in reality. We're not interested in fantasies. Even if those fantasies are culturally accepted, even if the, the rules of that culture that accepts these fantasies are well known and adhered to, we want to get away from all that from all those illusions. I think in life, I think that's the goal. And there's a number of examples inside the Book of Mormon, a pattern, if you will, that happens over and over of people kind of waking up, realizing they're living inside an illusion, realizing what they're doing is destructive, is is evil is wrong, does not comport with reality, the truth, with what is. What's interesting about looking at that sort of pattern is that when you break away from a group, or when you break away from yourself and your own delusions, the delusions and the deluded, 
want to reach out and grab you and drag you back in. The delusions and those suffering under them want to pull you back in and and resist you leaving. That's a weird thing. We see this in the court of King Noah. You remember King Noah in the Book of Mormon? I'll give you a refresher if you've forgotten. King Noah was the father of Limhi and the son of Zenith. Zenith lived with the Nephites, but he left to go repossess the land of his fathers. The Nephites had actually left the land of, quote, Nephi, led by a guy named Mosiah. Mosiah had been warned of the Lord to leave the land of Nephi. And some of the Nephites followed Mosiah and some didn't. But Mosiah and his people leave the land of Nephi and they go and they join up with another group of people who were living in a place called Zarahemla. Anyways, a couple generations after this, this guy, Zenith, who was living in Zarahemla, he decided he wants to go back to the land of Nephi. He wants to go back to where his ancestors came from, you know, to relive the glory days or to reestablish a Nephite outpost. Who knows what motivated Zenith? Maybe he felt inspired, but he goes back to the land of Nephi. And in this land where his people used to dwell, in the land that they used to own several generations earlier, there's a bunch of Lamanites there. So Zenith cuts a deal with the chief, the king of the Lamanites, to take some of the land and live there. And the king of the Lamanites lets him do this. And Zenith sets up this new outpost in the land of Nephi, the land that they used to live in. Well, Zenith and his people work hard, and they live there for 22 years, and they build up a you know pretty nice community. They're doing well. And the Lamanites who had given them back their land, well, they get sort of jealous and there's some battles and they fight back and forth. And But Zenith and his people are industrious. They're more organized. They work harder. And over this 22-year period, they not only triumph over the Lamanites who are fighting them from time to time, but they also build this pretty prosperous place. And Zenith dies. And then he gives his town, his village, his kingdom, you know, however you want to think about it, he gives it to his son, Noah. And Noah, unlike his father, is just a horrible person. He's lazy. He's, he's a, they call him a wine-bibber. You know, he's an alcoholic. And all the gospel art depictions in Noah, he's this big fat guy sitting on a throne. So he, he's a lazy, spoiled, you know, self-indulgent kind of guy. And he runs the town a little differently than his father did. And he has this court of minions, of henchmen, if you will. And these guys are the priests of Noah. You know, I suspect that they're kind of like the town council or the, you know, presiding quorum. And, you know, probably both those things mixed up together. And one of the priests of Noah is Alma, the elder. And Alma, the elder, like a lot of us do when we enter adulthood and we join our corporations or we take jobs or we go to graduate schools. He, he's just, I suspect he's just trying to make a living, just trying to fit in, get along. You know, and he wants some status like we all do, I think, at that stage of life and some success. And he wants to, you know, partake in all the good things that this little outpost set up by Zenith, now run by Noah, has to offer. You know, he wants to partake of all the the spoils of how would you think about colonial Nephite life, I guess? And I'm sure he was aware of what was acceptable given the milieu, the vibe of the town and 
this sort of social structure that had been set up by Noah. And he was probably attuned to all this sort of stuff subconsciously. But the facts are that society in this town set up by Zenith, under the rule of his son Noah, who was a different quality type of guy, had decayed. People were getting lazy. They were drinking more. Noah was building himself a lot of beautiful buildings, and so they were becoming materialistic. The powerful men of this community start doing what powerful men in a lot of communities start to do, which is take on mistresses and start to, well, start to indulge themselves. And Alma, the elder, is probably thinking, well, this, you know, this is life. This is the way it goes here, and why not? And all this kind of decadent stuff is going on for a while, and then this guy Abinadi shows up. And Abinadi basically says, you guys are living a fantasy. You guys are destroying yourselves. You're destroying your town. He doesn't use that language. He sort of takes them to task for not obeying certain commandments. But the inference is the same. I mean, you're destroying yourself. You're living an indulgent lifestyle. You're living under delusions. If Abinadi were from the East, he might say something like, you're being driven by your ego, and you're not even aware of it, and it's completely hidden your inner being. But however you want to think about it, Alma listened to this guy, Abinadi, and something sparked in him. Something woke up. And he says, you know, there's something to what this guy, Abinadi, is saying. He, he's right about something. I'm not living in the real world. I'm not living according to truth and the reality. I'm not trying to achieve my purpose. I'm not trying to follow God. I'm not trying to understand what his purposes are in sending me here. And as Noah condemns Abinadi to death and the rest of the priests, the rest of this ruling body, revel in burning Abinadi to death and executing the sentence, Alma sort of wakes up and he says, I I think this guy Abinadi might be saying something important. That's what he says to the other priests. And that's what he says to King Noah. He says, you know, maybe we ought to listen to this guy. And Alma argues for Abinadi, which was in effect arguing for reality, for truth, and for waking up to reality and truth and to God's purposes, his true purposes for the group, for us, for the world. I mean, that's what Abinadi came. That's what Abinadi's message really was at its most fundamental. Wake up, stop destroying yourselves. Set aside your ego, set aside your bad habits, set aside your self-indulgences, your, your vanities, your self-deceptions, and look to God, your creator. Try, try to figure out the point of it all. Well, well, this appealed to Alma, so he tried to rally behind Abinadi. And the rest of the group, King Noah, the other priests, they couldn't see past anything that was going on in their own heads, their own pride, their own ego. And they sought to kill Alma. The king became angry, threw Alma out of the court, banished him, and then sent his servants out to kill him. And that is what happens when delusions and fantasies and those laboring under delusions and fantasies are confronted by reality. Delusions and fantasies and those ruled by them seek to kill reality and seek to kill people who are aware of and operating under knowledge of reality. And of course, we know this is true for the alcoholic or the addict by way of analog. Once he or she wakes up to his or her alcoholism, to his or hers addiction, the alcoholic or the addict needs to get away from all the people that they used to drink with or do drugs with 
or be addicted with. Because those people who are operating under the illusion that they don't have a problem with drink or drugs, all they're going to try to do is drag the newly awakened recovering alcoholic slash addict back into delusion to the point where they will use any tactic to try to convince the newly awakened alcoholic slash addict to stop being awakened. Why do they do this? It's such a strange phenomenon. But of course, that is the repeating pattern on the road to increased awareness and enlightenment. Past delusions, past fantasies don't always die so easily. They reach out and try to claw you back. And that's what happened to Alma. The same sort of pattern is found later in the Book of Mormon, when the people called anti-Nephi-Lehi were slaughtered by their former tribesmen. If you remember, the sons of Mosiah, a different Mosiah, not the same Mosiah who left the land of Nephi, but Mosiah's grandson, Mosiah. So Mosiah, who left the land of Nephi earlier in this podcast, we talked about Mosiah leaving the land of Nephi. He had a son, Benjamin, and then Benjamin had a son, Mosiah. And then the second Mosiah had a bunch of sons who traveled back to the land of Nephi yet again, but this time to preach the word. Anyways, they converted a group of Lamanites who had previously been a violent, warlike people. And once they were awakened to the notion that violence and endless war was probably not a constructive way to live one's life, they, they renounced their previous lifestyle. They renounced their previous culture of, of aggressive violence, of endless war. They'd grow tired of the misery associated with that sort of lifestyle. And they just said, we're not doing that anymore, these new converts, that is. Converts to a new way of life brought to them by some messengers in the form of the sons of Messiah. And they even renamed themselves. They called themselves the anti-Nephi-Lehi because they realized divisions and living apart from other people, even other races, other tribes, was just not a, not a good way to live. Didn't conform with the reality, with the truth. And in reaction to this renunciation of violence, in reaction to the people now called anti-Nephi-Lehi's desire to maybe set up a, a, a new place to live or to go somewhere else or to start anew, the other unchanged, still living under their delusions, members of their tribe, their former tribesmen, descended on the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi and started literally killing them with swords. What an incredible image and what an accurate depiction of how the old self, the old delusions, the old ego, the old fantasies will do all that they can to re-imprison the newly awakened person. So these tribesmen descended on the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi and began butchering them. And a number of the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, instead of fighting back, they, they had grown so tired. They were so sick of that way of living. They just prostrated themselves on the ground and said, have at it, kill me. I'd rather you kill me and destroy my body than, than that I go backwards in time and recloak my mind with delusions. This is a pattern we see over and over and over in the Book of Mormon. Someone leaving a lifestyle or a place or a culture that is corrupt, shrouded in delusion, and awakening to a new place, a new way. But, but new is even the wrong adjective. To, to something that's closer to reality 
to something that's closer to God's purposes. And in each case, when this has happened, when, when someone has left the delusion and entered reality, the delusions and, and the fantasies fight back in some way or another and try to drag the newly awakened back into the darkness, which of course is insane. But of course, it's only insane from the newly awakened's perspective. For some reason, those living under delusions, under fantasies, the logic all seems to make perfect sense to them why they should be dragging and reclaiming the newly awakened back into the throes of darkness. But what's the difference between the two? Why do some people kind of wake up to reality and others don't? I'm going to theorize here a little bit. This is not in any of the stories, at least not mentioned explicitly in any of the stories that I just talked about. I'm going to go out on a little limb here and speculate a little bit, but I think the explanation of why some people wake up when they do and why others don't has everything to do with believing your own misery, which sounds like a kooky expression on its face, doesn't it? I mean, how can some people, how can anyone for that matter, not believe their own misery or be aware of their own misery or, or accept the reality of their own misery But all we have to do is review our own experiences, the mundane and the profound. And by the way, most of our experiences are just mundane. All you have to do is review the mundane experiences of your life. And you'll find time after time after time when you denied your own misery or you're told by someone else to shrug off your own misery for the sake of the delusion, for the sake of of a fantasy, for the sake of some broadly accepted cultural norm, which is, which is, when you step away and think about it, just insane. Think back to the priests of Noah and King Noah and their wine-bibbers and they're living riotously and they have wives and concubines and they're basically exploiting the entire outpost set up by Zenith, exploiting women, indulging every appetite uncontrolled that they have Maybe the first, second, third time they were doing these things, maybe it's felt fun. But at some point, as it does for everyone, you're doing something that you think should be fun or good or make you feel right about yourself. And you just feel like garbage because some person that you just took advantage of or exploited looks up at you with, with an expression of pain or want or need. And, and, and those sort of experiences make all of us, because we're human beings, feel something, and it's usually misery. And we brush it aside because of the culture we live in, the accepted rules of conduct of our community, of our group, our corporation, our workplace, whatever it is. I had a very strange and unexpected experience where I was working with very wealthy people, extremely wealthy people, helping to manage investments. These people were also prominent members, not only of the business communities in which they were in, part of, but they were also prominent members of the LDS church, held prominent leadership roles, took meetings with the highest leadership in the church, 70s apostles. That's who these people were. And I sat in meeting after meeting after meeting with these people as they schemed how to squeeze another one or two or three percent of margin out of some group or some person or some entity that they had advantage over. And I look, I don't want to sound Pollyannish. I know that that's life and business. You got to be efficient. You got to compete. But the glee, what disturbed me was the glee that they took in exploiting others. And it, that, it was that glee that made me miserable. 
It also seemed out of sync with everything that we're supposed to be learning inside our community about charity and spirituality and the reality of life, the purpose of life, the eternal aspect of life. And any time I would raise this, even obliquely, with these people I was working with, or to others who were part of our community, the message was, well, don't feel that. Don't feel that misery. Ignore that misery. Lie to yourself about the reality of that misery and come back into our delusions and our fantasies. But the fact is that misery was a call to wake up to a truth, to a reality, to real purpose. Misery, it turns out, is supposed to wake us up. The story I just told about these former business associates, that, oh, that's a very big dealish kind of story. But you know, the, this same sort of process of, of recognizing one's misery and, and, and not denying it and thinking about it happens over and over and over. I mean, we see little kids being conditioned by their parents where they complain about something or they feel like something isn't right. And they're told by their parents, oh, you're not feeling that way. You don't feel that way. Stop feeling that way. And of course, I, look, I know you can go insane. You got to be practical. And I know that not every little problem that you confront in life represents some major moment of awakening to the new reality of the world, you know. But there does seem to be something about misery that makes it a prerequisite to leaving delusion and insanity and fantasy behind. And that can be a scary moment. And when you begin to leave your fantasies behind, I think what you'll notice, as these patterns in the Book of Mormon explain, as patterns in other stories explain, as patterns in other traditions explain, is that the fantasies are going to come out and try to grab you and drag you back into darkness. Because you're leaving delusions, you're leaving fantasies, and entering reality means that the fantasies and the illusions die. In the word of Eckhart Tolle, when you recognize the ego, the ego fights back because the ego knows that your awakening means its death. I mean, that's how Eckhart Tolle would describe it. That's how people from the East would describe it. Well, it's very similar for us. It's similar for everyone because leaving delusions, destructiveness, leaving that in the rear view mirror for all of us is pretty similar to the experience Alma the Elder had when he woke up to the destructiveness of the culture and the practices of the court of King Noah. The non-awake strike back. The zombies try to kill you, in a sense. I mean, it's dramatic. It's overdramatic, overly dramatic. And I'm trying to make a point. And the point is this. As you ascend towards the light, as you shed darkness and clouds of darkness that surround your mind, you'll be tempted to relapse. And those enshrouded in darkness aren't going to help you at least not in their darkened state. And it takes some guts to say, like Alma the Elder did, you guys are insane, I, I'm out of here. It takes some guts, like the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi did, to just prostrate yourself down and say, I am not going to indulge in what previously has been a very destructive practice of mine. I'd rather, I'd rather you just kill me. Because the misery that attended that terrible practice is real. And I'm not going to lie to myself about it anymore. Sounds a lot like being born again to me. And of course it is. It's a real rebirth. Not a rebirth of the body, of course. But it's a rebirth of the soul. It's a rebirth of you. 
And the pattern is the same over and over and over. The details may differ, the specifics, but at a high level, it's the same thing over and over and over as we take one step at a time towards the light. And as you walk towards the light, it's not the people in the darkness that are going to help you. As you walk towards the light, it's going to be the people who are standing in even more light that are going to help you. So turn to them. Look for them as your guides. When you realize you're miserable, and then your misery leads you to change and to grow, don't look back at the people who are miserable still for the same reasons you are miserable, even if they don't seem like they're miserable. Because not only are they miserable, they haven't even woke up to how miserable they are. I mean, that. Don't turn to them for affirmation that you're making progress. As you step into the light, look to people who are in the light. As you leave misery, look to other people who have also left misery. They're going to be the ones who are going to be able to help you. Life is a lot like leaving Jerusalem, like Nephi and Lehi did. It's a lot like leaving the court of King Noah, like Alma did. It's a lot like just prostrating yourself on the ground and saying, if I have to go back to the misery I experienced because of my own delusions, I'd rather be dead than do that. That sounds extreme, I know. Certainly more extreme than most of us will experience. But the figurative takeaway is the same in all of these, which is you'll move forward and progress when you just are sick and tired of your old way of living. So if you're racked by negativity or lack of faith or bad habits, if you're lost in the darkness of constantly complaining of being a victim, wake up, turn to the light, and don't expect others suffering under the same sickness to heal you. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.